Welcome to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. This is the time set for oral argument in rehearing en banc of the case of the GEO Group and the United States versus Gavin Newsom and the State of California. If the parties are ready to proceed, you may begin. And as you come up, I understand you have decided to share your time, is that correct? Yes. And so are you reserving time for rebuttal? So you'll need to have to watch the clock. I'll help you. I'll try to help you, but you'll be ultimately responsible. I would like to save three minutes of my 18 for rebuttal, although I don't know the court's question. I will try to do that. And I hope this is the court unfortunately can't be with us, but we're obviously anticipating. May it please the court, Mark Stern for the United States. Can you speak up as much as you can? Thank you. AB 32 prevents the United States from contracting for the operation with private contractors for facilities in which persons who are awaiting removal proceedings are held. California legislature, in enacting that provision, strongly condemned the use of those facilities. The question here, as this point we've tried to emphasize throughout, is not the virtues or defects of the way in which ICE is implementing the federal immigration laws. The question truly is whether the United States can make the decisions about how it is going to implement the laws. Mr. Stern, before we get into the nitty-gritty, if you will, with this, as you know, we're required to make certain that we have a justiciable controversy. As I've looked through the materials in the record, I don't see anything that makes clear that the United States intends to extend the term of the contract in question. Are you authorized to make a statement to the court that we can rely upon concerning whether you intend to extend that term? I can tell. I haven't spoken to anyone about specific contracts, so I don't want to say anything. What I know is that ICE plans to continue to use privately operated detention facilities. It has a contract with GEO Group that expires in 2024, but is subject to one and then a second renewal. I have no basis for believing that the contract won't be renewed. And I respect that, but as I think you know, of course, this is an injunction that you're seeking, a preliminary injunction. Usually when people seek preliminary injunctions, they're concerned about an immediate harm. In this case, you've got a contract that at the very least go through, I think, December 19, 2024, before it's affected in any way. And it possibly goes through the same period in 2034. The government, based on what I've seen here, the executive order from the president, indicates that the government does not, and I'm going to read this, tend to renew, in quotes, any contract with privately operated criminal detention facilities hereafter. So I'm struggling with this. 
got a preliminary injunction that doesn't, you don't need until two and a half years from now or longer, and you have the president or at least an executive order saying that the federal government is not going to lease these kinds of facilities anymore. Is this a ripe uh, contract? Is there standing? Well, we, we certainly think that there is in the district court, and I, the um, panel both correctly concluded that there was. To be clear about the executive order, it, it refers to criminal detention. This is not a criminal detention facility. So your, your statement that what is mentioned in the um, executive order only pertains to criminal detention, right? That's correct. Okay. And we think, and although we're looking at a 2024 date, a 2024 date when you're talking about an operation on this scale, I think everyone has recognized that what need, would need to be done in order if the United States really could operate these facilities any longer in California, what would need to be done is we have to find whatever route. That's true, but it it doesn't change the fact that you still have to tell us whether you're going to do that, Uh, because otherwise, what what basis do we have for uh, countenancing a preliminary injunction that you don't need right now? I mean, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear. My only point was that I had not spoken to anyone about a specific contract, and if we didn't want to say anything about a specific contract, there is nothing happening right now to alter the ICE's practice of the only, I mean, ICE only operates the sort of like the facilities that it, that it does not operate itself. It does not build facilities and operate them. And in California, talking about Geo Group and other private contractors, those are the only ones in which these detainees are so, Council, can I ask you about the substance of your argument, which I think we can do in talk preemption? Is your argument that uh, if you had more time, presumably the federal government could operate these, if they were given 15 years, um, they could build enough facilities to handle those 7,000 beds, uh, but they can't do it within two years? It's kind of a presumption, but it's not a binding presumption. But is that what this preemption analysis hinges on, is whether the federal government could still accomplish their goal of housing position, this is preempted by the simple fact that one of the arrows in our quiver is taken off the table. The latter, Your Honor, and the fact whether the federal government could do something in another way is not the issue. The federal government is vested with the responsibility and authority to make decisions about how to deal with aliens who are awaiting removal proceedings. Because you can't do it privately. Because you, if, if the federal government could do 
future 
is not something that we go, well, the glandulite, you know, doesn't need to be repaved for a year and a half. What's the rush? Here, the rush is that if the United States, and there's nothing left, mind you, to be decided in a permanent injunction situation. I mean, this is it, right? So, like, the United States either has to know that we need to seek further review from the Supreme Court, if that's what the Solicitor General thinks is appropriate, or ICE would have to make alternative arrangements. Such as, for example, buying the facilities or leasing them themselves, right? Wouldn't that solve the problem? No, I don't think just leasing them would solve the problem. The so you're saying that the, the state could somehow tell the federal government that it may not, as the United States, lease these very same facilities? It's, I believe the way, the, like, the way this was written is the point is if it's privately operated by a for-profit corporation, that's it. That's, that's not the way I read it. I'm I, sorry. I'm I, 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 my understanding is there's nothing in any legislation from California that would, would stop or purport to stop the United States from leasing or buying these facilities and operating the same detention centers. Well, if the United States operated itself, right. yes, but that's the point, is the state of California cannot dictate to the United States how and who is going to run its detention centers. If this were a federal prison, we would know that would the, that the state couldn't say, no, you have to do this, you have to do this. It's no different. And the state couldn't make rules if it were about federal employees. It can't do it about contractors, and that's what all the cases, including sort of going back to Johnson and Osborne, this court's decision in Gartrell, and all of these are statutes of general applicability that involve requirements that compared to this really are, like, you know, I don't want to sort of understate it, but they're relatively minimal in their impact compared to this. Those just have to do with getting a license. In this case, the federal government is being told, license, but there's no way. Too bad. You can't do what it is you want to do. It's not just a question of getting a license. There is no case like this. No one in this case, no one in litigation has ever identified a case that's remotely like this, and for very good reason. And the way, and this can work, mind you, like all over the place. Different states have different policy preferences, and they can all decide under this reasoning that, well, you know, I don't like this particular thing. I'm going to place restrictions on the federal government's ability to contract with people in my state in order to accomplish it. And or, in this case, it would be, look, I don't want these people. You only house people in these kind of facilities. Fine. Go to another state. So what? So the United States is supposed to go to Arizona. But in Arizona, it's, what do you mean you're coming over here? Like, we're going to pass a statute then. We wouldn't have, but we can't have you transferring away. But, counsel, California, that gets back to my question, because it seems to me the federal government's interest here is in detaining these individuals. It's not necessarily, they're not commanded to detain them in a private facility. They've chosen to. That's been an accepted practice for 40 years. But if the federal government can still detain them, why can't it still achieve its federal purpose in its own facilities? But that's not the test for preemption. The test is not whether you render, it's not a mere kind of impossibility preemption where if, like, you do it, like, where the state 
includes and makes it impossible for the government to act. The question is, does it pose a burden? That's the question. I don't think the test is, does it impose a burden? I've never, I think it is whether you can achieve the objective. I mean, you can point me to a case that says impose a burden, but the federal government has multiples of burdens that are placed upon it by the state. The question is, can you still achieve the federal objective? It seems to me. I mean, I prefer, I mean, among the cases I would refer the court to are the Supreme Court's Crosby case, the Burma sanctions case. That was a case that involved Massachusetts spending its own money, and there was no direct conflict with any federal statute in that case. But the Supreme Court said, look, the federal scheme anticipates that the president needs to have flexibility to, like, be able to use a carrot as well as a stick, and the fact that Massachusetts. I think the test is if it substantially interferes with federal operations. With federal operations, you're trying to define it as federal operations as being able to use private contractors. Federal operations seems to me to be painting the individuals. You're right. I mean, one could redefine what the federal government is doing, but the point is that the federal, to say if the federal government were using some other form, right, of, in any situation, and is using a particular means, and the state says, I don't like this particular means, and we're doing something from now on, people in my state can't work with you doing this. If you want to use some other means, that's fine. And the federal government goes, well, wait a minute, there are 5,000 different reasons why I'm doing this and not the other one. And then the state goes, well, you're not being stopped from doing it. It's just going to be, it's not the way you think it ought to be done. And every case ever has, like, said, no, you cannot have the states doing that. This is really sort of like it's, this is just. Did you want to reserve a minute? I would think you're down to 48 seconds. Counsel, when you come back, if you could point us to the language in Crosby that you're relying upon to say that the test is burdened on the government. Okay, I'll try to do that. I'm not sure I can guess what the outcome would be. Counsel. I think you're muted, sir. We can't hear you. I apologize, Your Honor. Michael Kirk on behalf of GEO. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. Congress has granted the Secretary of Homeland Security broad authority to enter contracts that he determines are necessary and proper to carry out his responsibilities. That's 6 U.S.C. Section 112. And Congress has commanded the Secretary to arrange for appropriate places of detention. That's Section 1231. As the United States has pointed out on page 19 of its reply brief, ancient Homeland Security appropriation laws since the passage of AB 32 has included explicit language authorizing ICE to use appropriated funds to operate, to contract for privately operated detention facilities. These provisions clearly and unmistakably convey Congress's intention to grant the Secretary, acting through ICE, the discretion to use privately contracted facilities to the extent that he determines that that is appropriate. AB 32 directly conflicts with these provisions of federal law because it purports to deprive the Secretary of the discretion that Congress has granted to him. 
state argues that Congress has not been specific enough in granting ICE authority to use private facilities. But the premise of this argument is wrong. Congress has specifically mentioned the use of private facilities, both in the appropriations bills and in 1996. Congress expressly recognized that INS was using privately contracted facilities when it directed INS to report on the number of criminal aliens released from such facilities. That's AUSC Section 1368. The state is also wrong to argue that the general grants of authority to arrange for appropriate places of detention are not sufficient. Neither the Supreme Court nor this Court has ever required such specificity. Indeed, in United States v. California, this Court upheld application of California's AB 103 inspection regime only because, the Court said, and I'm quoting from 921 F. 3rd at 885, only because that state law does not regulate whether or where immigration detainees may be confined. That's exactly what AB 32 does. Okay, so that regulates where. What if there were a zoning regulation? The federal government came in and said, we need this facility within this certain location of San Diego for whatever logistical reasons. But there was a zoning regulation, a state or local zoning regulation, that prohibited that kind of facility to be built, whether it's by a private facility, by a private contractor or not. Would you be arguing that that's preempted under the same rationale that the discretion that's given to the Secretary is to decide where it wants to go? He said he wants it right here, so therefore the zoning regulation is preempted. I think that's a tougher question, Your Honor, because obviously it leaves the federal government with still quite a bit of discretion. AB 32 is so far away from your hypothetical that whatever the answer to the zoning question is. Why is it different? I mean, the federal government said we want to do this, we have done this for 30 years, but it's not the only way to achieve its objective. It clearly can and does in certain circumstances. The federal government goes out and builds detention facilities. So why can't it do that here? It might be physically possible for it to do it here, but the Secretary has decided that that's not appropriate. And it's one thing to say the Secretary has decided it's appropriate to use private contractors and the state can't override that. It would be a much tougher question, I acknowledge, if all the state was saying is you can't build in Zone 3, you've got to build in Zone 4, or you have to earthquake-proof the building. Those clearly aren't as close to standing as a substantial obstacle to the carrying out of the government's operations. Counsel, following up on my colleague's question, the veracity or rather the sustainability of your argument depends on whether there is a presumption against preemption on traditional state police powers. Do you agree with that? I don't agree that my argument depends upon it. Even without the presumption, I think we win. But I do think the presumption does not apply here because while protection of health and safety generally is an historic police power, protecting the health and safety of people in federal custody, no state's ever done that. With respect, I wrote an opinion in 2019, which is called United States v. California, wherein we specifically held that it was a historical precedent 
for the state of California to regulate the health and safety of penal institutions. I can quote you the exact language if you want. But well, if, if you want, I, I do recall it, Judge Smith. Um, in that case, I believe the issue was not um, not an issue. But it was a slightly different issue, but, I, but, but we had that holding that this was a traditional state action, if you will. It's part of the police power. And I think at least that portion of it applies here. Part of what I understand your argument to be is that basically if this is police power, it doesn't matter. This is the federal government. It can do whatever it wants. It preempts things. And as you seem to recognize, if you're talking about earthquake protection and other things that are traditional health and safety issues like zoning, there's some limitations on the power, and that's part of what we're struggling with here. Well, in answer to that, Your Honor, regardless of whether the presumption applies, the Supreme Court and this Court, in cases like Leslie Miller and Gutrell, have recognized that states, and again, I'm quoting from your opinion, United States versus California, states may not prevent the federal government from entering into agreements with its chosen contractors until the state's own licensing standards were satisfied. Here, they've not just said that we have to satisfy the licensing standards. They've said that um, we can't enter contracts for this work at all. In, in, at page 885 of your opinion, Your Honor, you said that such a law would constitute, quote, active frustration of the federal government's ability to discharge its operations. Now, it may be that a, a, a earthquake regulation or a zoning regulation would not rise to the level of frustrating the government's operations, but a complete ban requiring the closing of all of the government's facilities in California. And by the way, on your justiciability point, Your Honor, uh, I would direct you to excerpts of record 220 to 221, where uh, a declaration from the government indicated that they would need at least three years lead time before they would build a new, um, could build a new facility. So we can't wait till 2024 to get this resolved. Could I ask um, just a a slightly different question? The Supreme Court today decided in Washington v. United States an intergovernmental immunity uh, case. Uh, Apparently that doctrine is still uh, good law as of this morning, Um, which which talks about um, uh, the states don't have the authority to obstruct federal government operations. Can you, can you explain how, if at all, the intergovernmental immunity doctrine applies here? Certainly, Your Honor, and, and, and you're right to point to the Supreme Court's unanimous decision this morning in the Washington case. Um, on page five of the slip opinion in that case, the Supreme Court specifically stated that intergovernmental uh, immunity doctrine, beginning with McCullough versus Maryland, quote, prohibits states from interfering with or controlling the operations of the federal government. That is precisely what AB 32 does. It attempts to interfere with the federal government's immigration detention operations by barring the use of private contractors. Similarly, this court in the Boeing case squarely held that where a state law purports to regulate, and I'm quoting 768 F3840, not only the federal contractor, but the effective terms of federal contract itself, that's direct regulation, violation of intergovernmental immunity. It follows a fortiori that a state law that does not simply attempt to regulate the terms of the federal government's contracts, but completely prohibits it entirely, is plainly unconstitutional. 
Counsel, in fairness, though, didn't that case involve the federal government's historical constitutional immunity from state taxation and not application of police powers that the states exercise? No, Your Honor. The Boeing case involved... I'm talking about the Washington case. Oh, yes. No, the Washington case was also a regulatory case, Your Honor. It involved rules for people at the Hanford nuclear site, state compensation rules. This is Washington. But it was specifically addressing states taxing the federal government, right? Well, it was addressing the cost that the federal government bore for state workers' compensation. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Kirk, our chief judge in her dissent on the initial opinion in this case said that even if the court agreed with your position on the laws as to the first winter factor, nevertheless, it should be remanded to the district court to consider the remaining factors because the district court had not passed on those factors. I want to get your response to the point that she made in her dissent. Thank you, Your Honor. We think a remand is not necessary for the other winter factors because the district court did walk through them in the context of the United States Marshal Service facilities where the court granted the preliminary injunction. The court found that the upcoming closure of these facilities was irreparable harm and that because we were likely to prevail on the merits, the constitutional harm was also irreparable and the public interest favors following the Constitution. So I think based on the trial court's analysis of the other winter factors with the marshals, there's absolutely no difference between the marshals' facilities and the ICE facilities. If you want to reserve, I mean, you've both gone well over the time that you wanted to save, but I think if you want to reserve any time at all for rebuttal, a minute or so, you can probably. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I will take that generous offer. Okay. Thank you. Chief Judge Murguia, and may it please the court, Amy Weinberg on behalf of the state. Legal 32 regulates private businesses that wish to operate a private detention facility within California's borders. Counsel, that's not totally true. I mean, this regulates what the federal contracts with the federal government. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. Section 9501 is directed at private businesses and the operation of a private detention facility. Counsel, if rather than banning private detention facilities, the state had set up a licensing scheme in the interest of health and safety, you have to meet certain requirements to get a license, and then in order to continue the state's interest in maintaining health and safety, you have to keep up certain requirements in order to maintain that license. Would that pretty clearly be impermissible under Leslie Miller and the Public Utilities Commission cases? Your Honor, if there were specific federal regulations that spoke to the terms and conditions under which a private contractor could operate, then a state law that purported to conflict with or displace those regulations, that would be preempted under the holding in Leslie Miller and Dontrell, as Your Honor pointed out. So you're saying that the distinguishing factor is the set of procurement regulations in those cases that you're saying are absent in this particular case? That's the distinguishing factor? Your Honor, the distinguishing factor is that nowhere in the statutes that my friends have pointed to is there a 
best intent by Congress for the, uh, to foreclose state regulation of private detention operations. I, I want to I set aside because I realize that post-North Dakota, it can be very confusing to try to figure out, are we talking about uh, intergovernmental immunity? Are we talking about preemption and the presumption against preemption? So I want to just set that aside and just ask you, a, a, a factual question because Leslie Miller and those procurement uh, cases are still good law. So if the state had wanted to set up a licensing scheme, would that be permissible? Your Honor, with respect to, if Your Honor is asking about intergovernmental immunity and that licensing scheme applied to private operation operators, the answer is yes, that would be permissible so long it was, as long as it was not discriminatory vis-a-vis the federal government. The reason it would be permissible is that under North Dakota, and as confirmed by the Supreme Court this morning in the United States versus Washington case, the test for whether a state law is a direct regulation of the federal government is whether the law regulates the federal government itself. And state laws that may have indirect uh, consequences for the federal government by virtue of regulating private businesses. But Council, if we're talking about a private business that has no other business other than supporting the federal government, I mean, they, they don't do anything else. I, you might be right if you if it were a private contractor who had 100 clients and one of them is a governmental entity, but this is the whole purpose of these private companies is to take over a government responsibility. Your Honor, I don't think that's a distinction that matters here. Um, the question is whether the state regulation is operating as to the private business as opposed to the federal government itself. And that's because with respect to intergovernmental immunity, the state doesn't have authority to regulate government as such, but it has plenary authority to regulate private businesses that operate within their borders. That doesn't seem to be consistent with Judge Smith's opinion from the excerpts that we just heard that he issued I don't think that I, I respectfully disagree with the United States versus California offered by your honor uh, did not address direct regulation. It was a case involving discrimination. And I would point the court to the Supreme Court's decisions in North Dakota versus United States, Pandaries versus Milk Control Commission, Railway Mail Association versus Corsi. All of those cases, it would, could be said that the state as it applied to a private entity, interfered with the federal government's uh, desire or uh, plans to obtain services on the terms that the government wished. And in none of those cases was there found to be a direct regulation of the federal government. In, 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 the, in the case that we dealt with before involving California, it really boiled, what it boiled down to is that nobody ever thought that any state would ever do this, basically. So there was no regulation. So there was nothing that directly barred it. I think the state would agree if the federal government, either by regulation or statute, said, you know, no state may do X or Y, that controls, right? Your Honor, we do not dispute that Congress has the power to confer a right on private companies to operate private detention services. But they have to be specific. And, And in this case, as I see it, one of the biggest challenges is you've got a situation here where the statutes that are cited by your friends on the other side 
are not very specific. They're very general. They have a lot of discretion. And part of it gets down to whether the standard required if the presumption uh, or the presumption against um, preemption applies. It's got to be really, really clear. And I don't see that here. Do you agree with that? I do, Your Honor. I agree that nothing in the congressional enactments that my friends have pointed to reflect a clear and manifest intent by Congress to foreclose states from regulating private detention operations within their own borders. In the intergovernmental immunity area, which I'm still sort of interested in, the Stevens plurality in North Dakota, um, he says that the, the court has adopted a functional approach to claims of governmental immunity. So if we took a functional approach to this um, statute, AB 32, um, does that make a difference? Because it does, the functional effect of this statute is to prevent the federal, is focused solely on the federal government to prevent the federal government from contracting with federal contractors to run the private prisons. Your Honor, I respectfully disagree that the intent is specific to prohibiting the federal government. I, I don't care about the intent. I'm just saying the functional effect because that's what Justice Stevens said, at least in his plurality. Your Honor, it's correct that the court has adopted a functional approach, and I think that would lead the court to conclude there is no direct regulation here. And that's because the fundamental question, as it was um, discussed in North Dakota, is whether the Do you think that's what functional effect means? The functional effect of something is who it operates on, or is it the functional effect of the the law? Your Honor, I think it's a functional approach in the sense that the court was not adopting um, a high, uh, it it was adopting a high bar to a claim of intergovernmental immunity because in the language that follows there, the court was clear that the purpose of the doctrine is to respect each sovereign's authority and that if there is a concern with one or the other sovereigns um, overstepping their bounds, or in this case a state overstepping its bounds or interfering with the federal government's practical operations in some sense, that's a question for Congress. It's not a judicial question. So, so Stephen says the non-discrimination rule finds its reason in the principle that the states may not directly obstruct the activities of the federal government. So um, does this not directly obstruct the activities of the federal government? Your Honor, it doesn't because these are not the activities of the federal government itself. If the federal government's contracting with private contractors is not the activities of the federal government? Your Honor, the statute AB 32 was not regulating the contract itself. I don't know why you stick with this argument. You've got so many better arguments. I, I mean, I, I just, this doesn't even seem to, to, to be in the realm of a real argument that, that this isn't a federal government function. Your Honor, we don't dispute that immigration detention is something that is within the jurisdiction and powers of the federal government, but there are different questions under the preemption doctrine and the intergovernmental immunity doctrine. And with respect to the intergovernmental immunity doctrine and direct regulation, that inquiry is centered on who is being regulated. 
and not whether there are indirect or explicit. But that's what I don't understand is how you can say the federal government is not a regulatory actor. Can you find other, are there other cases where a government contractor is, that contracts solely with the government, with governmental entities is not subject to, the regulation of that would not impose intergovernmental immunity? Your Honor, in Pendarius v. Milk Control Commission, the state agency punished a milk supplier because of the term of one of its sales of a product to the federal government. The state there imposed a price regulation, informed the suppliers of the product that it couldn't bid on federal government proposal in a way that conflicted with the state regulation. In other words, the state couldn't, the supplier couldn't offer or sell to the federal government milk at the price, at any price free from state constraint. And the court there held that that was not a direct regulation. We don't deny that in regard to that regulation of private companies, there could be indirect burdens on the federal government. But when the regulation is regulating the private entity and not the federal government, there is no direct regulation. Counsel, if I can go back to preemption. Under conflict preemption, the key question is whether a state law poses as an obstacle to a federal objective. And if we look at the facts of this case, the United States government doesn't have any of its own facilities for detention in California. It relies exclusively or almost exclusively on private detention centers in California. So if we ban private detention centers in California, I don't see how this doesn't impede the federal objective of detaining certain non-citizens. Your Honor, the reason that it doesn't is because the question is whether Congress clearly and manifestly intended for states not to have authority over private detention facility operations. And here my friends have pointed to a variety of statutes, in particular 8 U.S.C. Section 1231G and 6 U.S.C. Section 112B. But neither of those reflects the clear and manifest intent to foreclose state regulation. But the language is incredibly broad. I mean, does Congress then have to? It seems like you're asking for a magic words theory of preemption, that they have to recite every single scenario. It uses incredibly broad language. It says any appropriate places of detention. It doesn't say appropriate governmental places. It says any appropriate detention places. Then on top of that, Congress every year allocates money and explicitly mentions private detention centers. So I think it seems like the congressional intent is clear, unless you're asking for certain magic words that it has to explicitly say that in the statute. Your Honor, it's not a question of magic words, and I can address each of those provisions. But I'd like to begin by drawing a contrast between the provisions that Your Honor has pointed to and 18 U.S.C. Section 4013, which is the statute governing the marshal service. The language in 18 U.S.C. Section 4013 tracks almost identically the language of 1103A11, which is the immigration statute. The marshal statute doesn't have this broad language of any appropriate places of detentions. What Congress did there is they explicitly said these are the places you can contract with states, enter leases, or federal detention. That's one way of going at it. Another way is, and it doesn't mandate, 
It doesn't say you have to enter into private leases or states. It says these are options. And another way Congress can achieve that same goal is use a broad term, such as any appropriate places of detention. It seems like there are just two different ways Congress can go about achieving the same goal. Disagree with that for two reasons. One is that the United States Department of Justice likewise has general authority that it, uh, over detention and contracts. It's in 18 U.S.C. Section 4001 and 28 U.S.C. Section 530C. And the language, the second point is that the language of Section 1231G refers to, as Your Honor noted, appropriate places of detention. As the Fourth Circuit said in the Reina versus Todd decision, the statute is centrally focused on the physical location of a brick and mortar facility. We know that because the language of that entire provision is focused on the facilities themselves. Counsel, can I pick up on Judge Lee's question, but have you move away from preemption and maybe back into the, the intergovernmental immunity uh, realm for a moment? Uh, because as you discussed with Judge Lee, federal law does delegate to DHS the authority to um, determine the appropriate places of detention as well as the authority to enter into the appropriate contracts in order to effectuate that goal, right? Why don't uh, that set of uh, law and regulations operate in the same way as the procurement regulations uh, in the cases that we discussed earlier, Leslie Miller and Public Utilities Commission? And, and, and if it does operate in a similar way, then uh, those cases seem to me stand for the proposition that the state can't give itself the power of review over uh, federal contracting decisions. And isn't this then a power review over the decision by the federal government to use private contractors for these ICE detention facilities? Your Honor, it's not. And the difference between Leslie Miller, Cottrell, and the Public Utilities Commission this case lies in the specific language of the federal regulation or statute. That well, that, that's, why, that's why I followed up on Judge Lee's point. There are procurement regulations in those cases, but in this case, there's federal law delegating to DHS discretion to select the appropriate places of detention and the power to enter into contracts to effectuate that goal. And Your Honor, I don't think either of those provisions regarding the state law in this context is an affirmative act by Congress 
that was discussed in Kansas versus Garcia, that judging by the text and structure of the law expresses a clear and manifest intent by Congress to foreclose state regulation of these private businesses. Well, what we know is that Congress said we want you to do this task, and we want you to pick appropriate places to do it. And so why does it need to outline all the details of that? It just says it's a broad grant of authority, as Judge Lee's opinion described. Why isn't that enough? I guess I'm back to basically making the same, you know, asking the same question he's making. Like, what words did you need to be clear about that this is not an area where states get to step into? Your Honor, I think it's notable that 1231G lacks the language of 18 U.S.C. Section 4013. It doesn't talk about private detention, private facilities, number one. Can I ask you why that's important? Because I was struck by the district court. It didn't make sense to me why the fact that that language was included, nobody disputes that under both statutes there is authority to contract with private detention facilities. And the language that the district court picked up on that the U.S. Marshal Service doesn't require them to use private facilities. So I don't understand how these statutes are treated differently in that sense because that language is there. If Your Honor is referring to the language in Section 4013, the reason why it's relevant is because the statute specifically identifies private facilities as a method for housing federal U.S. Marshals inmates. It also talks specifically about the circumstances under which the U.S. Marshals can use private detention options. That language is notably missing from the immigration context. 1103A11, which is the... Do you disagree that the immigration context gives the authority for the government to contract with private entities for detention facilities? Your Honor, we don't think that there's a clear and manifest intent in the statutes to foreclose state regulation of private detention facilities. The question about whether ICE... I understand why that language is there, but if they have a discretion to exercise that authority, in both cases the federal government has that better than the whoever, and I don't understand why they'd be treated any differently. Your Honor, I think the reason why they're different questions, if I'm understanding Your Honor's question, is because if the practices of ICE are lawful, turns on different considerations, which is whether this are a different standard, which is whether Congress expressly prohibited the practice or whether ICE might be entitled to any form of deference with regard to how it's interpreting its authorizing statutes. That's a different question than the one that's before the court today, which is whether Congress conveyed its clear and manifest intent that states can't regulate in this area. To that point, as you know, your amicus counsel pointed out that at least with respect to the initial statute that is cited by the government, that there were no private prison facilities in the United States at that time. Does it matter that when Congress enacted that statute, they couldn't possibly have been thinking about private facilities in order to meet the clear and manifest standard that you referred to? 
Your Honor, are you, is, I apologize for the question. Is the court referring to 1231G or 1103? So I think that the import of that provision is that it is focused on facilities. It's not focused on detention services. It talks about U.S. government facilities. It talks about leasing. It talks about construction. And absent from that statute are language like care, housing, security. Those words are in 4013. When Congress intended to speak to a detention service as opposed to a physical place of detention. Counsel, if we were to rule in your favor, I just want to make sure I understand the scope of what we'd be deciding here. If we ruled in your favor in this case, would there be anything that could stop, let's say, the state of Arizona from saying, look, we're not like California. We don't want these people coming here. So in terms of private detention centers in our state, no air conditioning, no rec yard. We want this to be as miserable as possible. And we don't care what the federal government wants. That's how we want our private facilities here. If we rule your way, what would stop Arizona from doing that? Your Honor, I think Arizona would likewise have similar authority to regulate private businesses operating within their borders. It is undisputed in this case that Congress would have the authority to take action to confer on private businesses the right to operate according to whatever specific standards Congress showed or adopted. But the problem with my friend's argument is that Congress just has not done that. Well, yeah, Congress doesn't have a great record of immigration. But I guess my question, though, is that your view is Arizona could do that. If you win this case, Arizona could do whatever it wants with private facilities. Your Honor, I don't know that whatever it wants is a good position to be taking. What could it not do? Your Honor, there are obviously other forms of constraints on states arising from different provisions of the Constitution, like the Eighth Amendment and equal protection and things like that. But I think the point here is that Congress has not clearly and manifestly intended to strip states of authority to regulate private businesses. So the answer to my question is that, yes, Arizona could do those things. Your Honor, I think there would very likely be other forms of concerns not tethered to the claims here, such as what the scope of the federal immigration statutes are. But every state in the Ninth Circuit could say no private detention facilities. The federal government cannot use any private detention facilities. Your Honor, the other states in the Ninth Circuit could, if we were to prevail, then, yes, they could adopt a statute similar to AB 32, which is regulating the private businesses. So arguably, if other circuits agreed with us, this would mean that the states would decide that the federal government could not use private detention facilities for immigration detainees or for prisoners of any sort. So the 50 states could all decide that, and the federal government could not use it. Is that the import? Your Honor, the 50 states could decide to preclude the operation of private detention facilities. But what is always available to the federal government, if it concludes that states are acting in ways that interfere with important federal policy objectives, Congress undeniably has the power to preempt state regulation of private businesses. So only preemption would work. The intergovernmental immunity is not effective. Your Honor, I think that the preemption provision is not effective. Thank you. 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 Thank you
Your Honor, it would only, there would only be a problem under intergovernmental immunity in this scenario where the state is regulating the private business is if the states were not acting independently and treating similarly situated state contractors. Who's similarly situated to the federal government? Because only the federal government is running the detention centers. And they're defined, the definition of detention center requires the government to be doing it. Obviously, the state can do what it wants. It's not regulating itself. It can decide how to use private detention facilities. But otherwise, the only entity regulated is the federal government, as I read the statute. Your Honor, I don't agree with that. And that's because Section 9501 applies to private businesses that wish to sell their services to local, state, or the federal government. And a premise of Your Honor's decision in United States versus California was that immigration detention facilities were similarly situated to criminal detention facilities. And of course, states operate those. And so the anti-discrimination principle would operate as a restraint on states in the hypothetical that Your Honor was raising. I see that I have consumed a couple of moments of my colleague's time. We would ask the court to affirm the judgment of the district court. Thank you. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Michael Kaufman on behalf of AMICI, NAJC, and ACLU. Your Honors, I'd like to begin by addressing the primary authority appellants invoked here. Section 1231G, a provision that provides ICE authority to arrange for appropriate places of detention. While it's no doubt true that appropriate, the term appropriate, can indicate discretion in certain circumstances, in other circumstances, it indicates a limitation. For example, if someone were to say, wear appropriate dress to the wedding, that surely doesn't mean you can wear whatever you want to the wedding. As the Supreme Court has instructed, that the term appropriate is inherently context-dependent. That comes from Sossamon v. Texas, a case from 2010. So your position is appropriate means things that are not prohibited by the scheme? No, Your Honor. I think if you look at the context of Section 1231G, it's clear that appropriate detention facilities there are facilities operated by the federal government. If you look at the next sentence in 1231G, it begins with the term United States government facility. It refers to the fact that federal officers may be housed in the facility, and they're only going to house federal immigration facilities. So you're actually arguing they can't contract at all. They don't have the discretion. They don't have the authority under the statute to contract with private contractors. That's correct, Your Honor. That's our position, however. Has any court adopted that position? No court has adopted it. No court has rejected it, Your Honor. However, as my colleague indicated, to affirm AB 32, this court need only find that Congress did not evince clear and manifest intent to display state regulation here. Doesn't that only apply if the presumption against preemption also applies? Absolutely, Your Honor. And for the reasons that you articulated, I think it's well established from Your Honor's decision, U.S. v. California, and the other authorities cited by my colleague from California, that the presumption should apply here. If I can follow up on that, if the presumption against preemption applies, can you still have conflict preemption? Yes, of course. Congress just has to speak clearly and manifestly. 
isn't that, isn't that part of the presumption against preemption? Just, just to assume for purposes of this question that the presumption applies, can you still have preemption because of conflict preemption because it impedes a federal objective? Absolutely. Congress just has to speak clearly and manifestly to displace them. And it does so. I mean, I'm not sure what, what that has to do with conflict preemption, which is really about a more practical look of does it impede a federal objective. So here, I mean, does it really matter? I mean, we've talked about a lot of what appropriate place of detention means and whether they should use different words. But just looking at the practical effect here of the state law, is it seems like based on the facts here, it impedes a federal objective of being able to detain immigrants in California because they will have no place to be placed in. So isn't that enough for, uh, for preemption, because, uh, conflict preemption? We're not talking about express preemption or just for in terms of conflict preemption. We just look at it a more practical way, and it seems like California is impeding uh, this important federal objective. A few responses, Your Honor. First, I, I think the presumption against preemption is part of the analysis of conflict preemption, so that's, that's what I could address. But put, putting that aside here, to address the, the issue Your Honor is raising about whether this impedes the federal government's operations, I'd just make a few points here. First, it has been the case until recently that the federal government operated many facilities itself in California and across the country. There's a facility just down the road from here in San Diego. And it is the case today that Customs and Border Protection, another agency within DHS that enforces immigration laws, operated all of those facilities. Uh, and it experiences fluctuations in detention populations just like ICE. In fact, probably more extreme because they're operating along the border. And the last point about the cost of detention here, we noted in our brief that the contracts that ICE has with GEO has what are known as minimum bed guarantees, where the federal government pays GEO regardless of whether or not the beds are filled or not. So this, the issue that the federal government relied on about there being some concern that they would have to pay for empty federal beds exists whether or not the federal government is operating the facility or GEO is doing that. But to get back to the issue of statutory interpretation here, Your Honor, if I may, and I realize our court has 30 minutes. Can we give you one more minute? Sure, Your Honor. Just to the extent that the term appropriate were ambiguous at all, I think that's resolved by looking at the statutory context here of the INA as a whole. There is another provision that does authorize immigration authorities to contract out of detention facilities, 8 U.S.C. 1103-A11, but that provision only authorizes contracts with state or locality, and as my colleague indicated, in marked contrast with the marshal's provision. If it were the case that the term appropriate in Section 1231-G gave the attorney, excuse me, the DHS broad authority to contract with whomever they wanted, then there would have been no reason for Congress to adopt Section 1103-A11. It would be entirely superfluous. Well, I think that is because states are their own sovereigns, and the context of that was the whole issue of commandeering. There was a circuit split in 1996 where the federal government can commandeer state officials to do this, and in 1997 the Supreme Court said no, U.S. v. Prince. So that seems to be context of can the federal government direct state prisons to hold or states to hold uh, detainees. It's quite different, I think, because you have to respect the sovereignty of, of the states. I think that's what that was about. Your Honor, if I could just have your indulgence to just respond quickly okay. on that one. Just quickly on that point, Your Honor, I just want to make clear that's not an argument that either the United States or appellants advance in their briefing. However, I, I think that can be reconciled with the terms of the statute. 1103A11, by its plain terms, is plainly a grant of authority to ICE, not some sort of limitation. When Congress wanted to make clear that an agency's powers should not be interpreted in a way to infringe state, states' rights, it sent on far clearer terms. Another provision in the INA, also enacted as part of the IRA-IRA, gave the DHS Secretary authority 
to essentially deputize state and local officials to enforce immigration laws. These are known as 287K permits. And directly after that provision, Congress wrote, this is at 8 U.S.C. 1357G9, nothing in the subsection shall be construed to require any state or local political subdivision of a state to enter into an agreement with the Attorney General under this subsection. That, Your Honor, is what a reservation of states' rights looks like. And it makes clear that's what's going on in 1103A11 and something I'll refer to in my brief. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Mr. Stern, I'm going to give you two complete minutes, and then I will give Mr. Kirk one minute. Thank you very much, Your Honor. I appreciate it. I just want to make a couple of quick points. One, I wanted to, I don't have the Crosby case with me, Your Honor, but I would point to the language about outstanding as an obstacle to the accomplishment and execution of the full purpose. It's different than your argument that if a burden is imposed. If it stands, I mean, I'm just relying on the Supreme Court's language, which has been applied by this Court many times now. So, and again, I think just looking at that case and what was going on there sort of helps to see why this one is so much clearer. I would like to say something about intergovernmental immunity, which we really didn't get a chance to talk about, but really I would like to really emphasize is that intergovernmental immunity does not require a showing of discrimination. That's what the cases like Leslie Miller and Johnson and Bartrell all say. There's no discrimination in any of those cases. That's sort of like sort of hornbook law going back for 200 years. Are you arguing discrimination here today? The panel did. The panel parsed through all of the reasons why this is discriminatory. The panel majority. Just to be clear. No, no, no. It's actually, I'm trying to make a point because I don't know that the panel majority really wrestled with the substantial interference and the incidence test. I think it primarily relied on discrimination. And so I just wanted to see what are you arguing here today? We are, I mean, you don't, I mean, what's clear is you don't, there's nothing, I mean, there's lots of different ones we've discussed for the reasons, but there's also no de minimis exception in these areas. And the burden is just on its face so much clearer than it is in the intergovernmental, like intergovernmental immunity cases that we cite. That, I mean, this one takes you like a great leap forward. And if I could just sort of quote, and we had some discussion about Warner's decision in the last California case. And I realized that this is dicta, but I thought I'd summarize like the point, like from our point of view very well. Because the court said that in that case, which was an inspection statute, there's a need to like the federal government being unable to. You're already beyond your time, so just very quickly. Okay, here's the rest of the quote. Like he says, it's not like Leslie Miller and Bartrell, which prevented the federal government from entering into agreements with its chosen contractors. And those cases have been states active frustration of the federal government's ability to respond to the operations. And we think that's exactly what we have here. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Kirk. Thank you, Your Honor. This 
its position on intergovernmental immunity depends upon its claim that AB 32 only regulates private parties. But if you look at the text of the statute, it regulates private parties who enter into contracts with the federal government to operate private detention facilities. There is no difference between a law stating that the federal government may not contract with private parties to operate these facilities versus a law stating that private parties may not contract with the federal government. Whether worded one way or the other, the result is the same. Both contracted parties are effectively prohibited from contracting for the operation of private detention facilities, and that's direct regulation of the federal government. It is telling that California can cite no case in which a court has even permitted a state to regulate the content of a federal government contract, much less a case permitting a state to ban private entities from contracting with the federal government to provide services the federal government wants. And there's no stopping point in the state's theory. If states can impede the operations of the federal government by blocking private parties from entering contracts, they could also block them from serving as employees. Under California's theory, a state could block immigration detention altogether by prohibiting persons within the state from working at a private immigration facility. Any federal policy that a state disagrees with can be effectively blocked by prohibiting persons within the state from facilitating. That's why intergovernmental immunity forecloses. Thank you. Thank you all very much for all of your oral argument presentations today. Very helpful and illuminating. The case of Geo and the United States versus Newsom and the state of California is now submitted, and we are adjourned. Thank you.